Howard Blum in the Eyes of a Killer, Part 2. Part 3 of 3. And what about Brian Koberger? A man who has resolutely professed his innocence. What emotions rushed through him as he saw the flashing lights in his rearview mirror? To judge by his demeanor on the two body cam videos, he displayed a remarkable calm. He seemed unruffled by the sort of highway encounter that would have left many people jumpy, even if they would never subsequently be charged with four counts of homicide. Highway cops routinely wield their authority as a bludgeon. It's their first line of defense. Koberger's emotional temperature, however, didn't appear to jump a notch. This is, indeed, one side of Brian Koberger. Discipline and control, as his courtroom appearances reveal, can rule. But there is also, by his own admission, and in his own words, another side to him. One that is dark, detached, and steeped deep in misery. Unhappiness and alienation can often dominate his mood, says Koberger, writing as a desperate teenager on the website Tapatalk. They are the raw, bedeviling forces that drove him, he explains, to contemplate suicide. They are the painful demons, he wails to a friend, that drove him to search for sort of a relief by mainlining heroin. And at the root of all his swirling emotions, he diagnoses in the online postings with an unwavering certainty is visual snow. Visual snow is a rare but very real and chronic neurological condition. To those who suffer from it, through a glass darkly, it's like looking at a television screen and the pictures fluttering, the images obscured by an amorphous, grayish waves and scattered, flickering dots. But is it a disease or is it a psychological condition? Doctors, according to the sparse literature, throw up their hands in frustrated confusion. They just don't know. And what can't be diagnosed is even more difficult to treat. But for the teenage Brian Koberger, if his online posts were any reliable guide, Visual Snow had at times buried its, his existence in an avalanche of despondency and desperation. I often think of myself as an organic sack of meat with no self-worth. I am starting to view everyone as this. I always feel as if I am not there, completely depersonalized, constant thought of suicide, crazy thoughts, delusions of grandeur, poor self-image. No emotion. I feel like nothing has a point to it. Everyone hates me, pretty much. I am an asshole. As I hug my family, I see nothing. It is like I'm looking at a video game, but less. In the posts, he's a suburban incarnation of Camus's Mirasalt. Only Koberger's at the sea in the Poconos, 
rather than Algeria. Yet it is a mindset that, just as Marisalt discovered, is empowering. Koberger decides, he can do whatever I want, with little remorse. Oh, and the bristling anger. According to the internet sleuths who have traced his teenage email to a posting on SoundCloud 11 years ago, Koberger's defiant moods took flight in a howling rap song. You are not my equal. You are evil, but I'm the devil. He challenges. Always the same thing that disrupts my life. Wonder when I'll change. I guess one the time is right. Procrastinating my deranged to change would be a fight. So I'm pacifist, like I'm afraid to get a bloody fist. Look at this, my mind is pissed, and I keep running. Why is this? When I hit it, always we've been stunning. Always gentle giant, no defiance, all building alliance, and still think that I am peasant. I stuck in the future, but I'm never looking at the fucking present. Keep it up, act like you're all that. Here's a cookie too and a present. Led from a desert eagle, eagles going louder than my motherfucking beagle. And you're like, you get no sequel. Leave you love once crying like some seagulls. You are not my equal, you are evil, but I'm feeble. And now I'm going regal. Don't fuck with us. We learn our lesson. Of course, these posts and lyrics are the work of a teenager. But more than a decade has flown by since they were written. It was time enough for Coburger to find the will to kick the heroin, the discipline to graduate from college, and the ambition to enroll in a Ph.D. program. Nevertheless, perhaps the anguish posts and the ferocious song are also a warning. Out of words come events. The future could not exist without having been envisioned in the past. And one more puzzlement, in this case, must be confronted. Are these teenage thought dreams the imitations of an adult future? The Great Trash Robbery For the hunters, meanwhile, it was a time of preparation. And as a result, in the antsy days following the Coburgers' arrival, at last, in the Poconos on the afternoon of December 16th, the Moscow police suffered through variable moods. There were bursts when there were no denying that a great push forward was underway. Corporal Brett Payne, the PD's lead investigator, obtained a search warrant, and then a day later, on November 23rd, he received the records of Koberger's cell phone for 24 hours before and after the homicides. With the help of the FBI, this information was employed to plot a map that intensified suspicions. After cell phone towers near the King Road house lost all track of Koberger's phone at about 3 a.m., was it shut off? Left at another location? His phone suddenly jumped back to life in the wee hours of the morning, not long after the murders, and his car was tracked heading south from Moscow. At just after 9 a.m. that same day, nearly two hours before the police were summoned. He was tracked to the neighborhood of the killings. The murderer returned to gaze at the scene of the crime. Payne could only wager a guess. But according to the now confident buzz going through the PD, this was a bet he'd take. On the other hand, it was also a time of disappointment. Just as the case was nearing the finish line, cops in Moscow moaned. They had no choice 
but to hand it off to the Pennsylvania State Police. Koberger was now on the Stadies playing field. They'd be the ones who'd take the ball over the goal line. Major Chris Paris had been handpicked by the FBI to run the ops for the Stadies, and he was a shrewd choice. He looked like a linebacker, and he did have a gruff, no-nonsense edge. But he was also a thoughtful, scholarly man. He'd graduated magna cum laude from the University of Scranton, and he went on to get a law degree from Temple, the most valuable given the circumstances. Paris possessed a lawyerly sense of discretion. He shared the secret that a suspect was in the crosshairs with just an eight-person working group. A leak, a promiscuous whisper, and the whole case might be blown. Or, although Koberger was apparently unaware of it at the time, the Stadies and the suspect were playing an intricate game of cat and mouse. There was Koberger, observed taking his Hyundai in for servicing at a garage in Effort, Pennsylvania, not far from his parents' home. Next, he's spotted wearing gloves as he gives the vehicle a meticulous cleaning. And of course, these are actions that can mean nothing or everything. It just depends on the preconceived notions that influence your judgment. A little harder to dismiss, though, is Koberger's sneaking over to deposit some trash in a neighbor's garbage pail at around 4 a.m. one morning. Getting rid of incriminating evidence? Or just a bit of mischief? Once again, evil is in the eye of the beholder. That was what some wags at Troop N, the state police barracks that was running the surveillance op, later dubbed the pilfering. On December 27th, Major Paris received a request from the FBI to plunder the trash bins outside the Koberger residence. That same day, once the Stadies were certain no one was looking, two troopers swooped in and made off with a pile of the Koberger's family detritus. The purloined parcel was quickly shipped across the country to Meridian, Idaho. There, at the Idaho State Police Crime Lab on South Stratford Drive, a forensic team went to work sorting through the trash. It turned out to be a treasure trove. For all along, the Moscow police had been holding on tight to a second secret, one that was no less charged than the statement from the eyewitness. A knife sheath stamped with the U.S. Marine Corps Eagle, Globe, and Anchor Insignia had been found lying on the bed next to Madison Mogan's bloody corpse. And from the sheath's button snap, a speck of male DNA had been recovered. It was a minuscule sample, but it was all that was needed. When compared to Michael Koberger's DNA lifted from the garbage that had been carried off, it proved nearly conclusively the techies confidently rejoiced that it was his son's DNA on the knife sheath. The next day, December 29th, a triumphant Brett Payne sat down to finalize the arrest warrant for Brian Koberger. 
When he was done, he had no time to enjoy his moment of high achievement. Instead, full of a tense urgency, an animating conviction that every moment counted, he hand-delivered the 18-page document to the courthouse. Moments after Judge Megan Marshall signed off, a call was made to Pennsylvania. It's a go, Major Paris was told. Ready for a fight. Dynamic entry is only used to serve an arrest warrant when the threat matrix is code red. You go in with overwhelming force, pounding down the doors, breaking windows, and setting off explosive devices. The strategy is meant not just to surprise the suspect, but also to scare the living daylights out of him. Because there's one thing that's always rising up in the mind of any tactical cop charging through the front door. If the target's waiting inside to ambush you, it doesn't matter what sort of tactics you use. This is his turf. He has the advantage. And if he's determined not to give up without a fight, bad things can happen. At just after midnight on December 30th, a Pennsylvania State Police Special Emergency Response Team, SERT, assembled at the gray, barn-like Troop N Barracks in Hazleton, Pennsylvania. There were about 24 of them, the usual 16 entry team members and maybe eight sharpshooters, and they were packing. Glock, 40 caliber pistols were generally the weapon of choice. And the point men, as a rule, carried two pistols. Those who'd be the first through the door were also armed with a stubby black HK MP5 submachine guns. It was a brutal weapon, particularly in an enclosed space. The backups had short-barreled Remington 870 12 gauges. It was a shotgun meant for killing, not wounding. And over military-style camo uniforms, they wore heavy, load-bearing tactical body armor fitted out with level 5 strike plates. The early morning arrest of Brian Koberger would be a code red op. Dynamic entry all the way. The CERT team piled into a couple of specially outfitted Ford E350 extended body vans for the ride to Albrightsville. A contingent of Troop N Stades followed as backup. All in all, they were about 40 officers. It might as well have been an invading army. They were ready for a fight. But as the force approached, the pretty community dotted with playgrounds and volleyball courts where the Kobergers lived, the lead van came to a sudden halt. The entrance to Indian Mountain Lakes was blocked by a pair of white boom gates. A code had to be entered in a sentry box for the gates to rise. And none of the heavily armed men had the code. At that frustrating moment, a few of the tough CERT team members, according to the amused story that buzzed around Troop N in the aftermath, wanted to just plow on through floor the heavy Ford vans and let them smash the damn boon gates to smithereens, they insisted. 
but cooler heads prevailed as the heavily armed officers waited impatiently in the vans. A state trooper tracked down an acquaintance in Indian Mountain Lakes, and the entry code was obtained. With the gates at last raised high, the force proceeded in the early morning darkness down a twisting road, passing one neat little house after another as it made its way to Lambsden Drive. It was so quiet, it seemed as if the cocking of a single rifle would rouse people from their slumber. But then all hell broke loose. A door flew off its hinges, windows shattered, explosive charges boomed. The cert team stormed and stunned the Coburgers' white clapboard home. In the end, without a single shot being fired, Brian Koberger was let off in handcuffs. Pitch Dark Jason Labar sat in his third-floor office overlooking Main Street in downtown Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania, waiting for it to get dark. He figured that'd give him the best shot of making his way to the Monroe County Jail without being followed by a pack of nosy reporters. Because since early that morning, December 30th, Labar, the chief public defender in the county, a lawyer whose family's deep roots in the area reached far back to colonial times, had awakened to the news that he would be the attorney of record for the most infamous prisoner in the nation. He'd be representing Brian Koberger in the hearing for his extradition to Idaho. Yet it had at first seemed to the gleeful Pennsylvania authorities that a lawyer might be unnecessary. In the hours after his arrest, Koberger had agreed to talk to the police. He said that, of course, he knew about the four murders in Idaho. Everyone in the area did. After all, he explained, he lived only about 10 miles from the murder house. And he kept on talking, steadfastly denying any involvement in the events for about 15 minutes. But as the eager interrogator's questions grew more pointed, Koberger said, enough. He wanted a lawyer. Only he couldn't afford to pay for one. That was when the call went out to Labar. He was the logical choice. Not only was he the chief public defender, but in his decades of practice, he had appeared before courts in more than 20 capital cases. He knew the territory. And not least, he was a local guy. A star three-letter man in his day at Bangor High School, recently elected to the school's Athletic Hall of Fame. He could handle the pressures that would come with this sort of case. Still, when Labar got the call, his first reaction, he'd say, was surprise. Like everyone else, he'd been following the events in Idaho. But he never could have imagined the trail would lead across the country to his own backyard. But Friday was a half day at the office, and instead of going home at noon, he closed the door and prepared for his first meeting with his new client. He needed to check the Idaho extradition statutes. He wanted to make sure he went into his conference with a firm agenda. There was a lot that needed to be done, and there was no knowing how much time he'd have before the authorities hauled Koberger back to his cell. But first, Labar waited for it to get dark. His strategy worked. 
On the short drive over, he kept checking his rearview mirror, but there was no one on his tail. And so it was just after 5 p.m. on an already pitch dark December evening when Labar finally sat across from Koberger. The conversation went on for about an hour. And afterward, Labar was willing to share a bit of what had been discussed. He started in, the lawyer said, by making it clear to Koberger that he would be representing him just in the extradition hearing. Therefore, he didn't want to hear any specific details about the case. He did, however, want to know if his client was willing to release a statement to the press. Koberger quickly agreed. In fact, he was adamant. He was determined to make sure people knew he was eager to be exonerated. Koberger also insisted, as Labar reported, This is not me. He denied being the murderer or having any specific knowledge of the crime. Labar also released a statement from Koberger's family. First and foremost, we care deeply for the four families who have lost their precious children, it read. We have fully cooperated with law enforcement agencies in an attempt to seek the truth and promote his presumption of innocence rather than judge unknown facts and make erroneous assumptions. The lawyer was struck by how calm and intelligent Koberger appeared. The gruesome crimes he had been charged with, the lawyer remarked with a clear sense of wonder, seemed a little out of character. And so the next day in his formal statement to the press, Labar sternly lectured, Mr. Koberger has been accused of very serious crimes, but the American justice system cloaks him in a veil of innocence. He should be presumed innocent until proven otherwise, not tried in the court of public opinion. Then, within days, Labar was off the case. On January 4th, shackled and in a red jumpsuit, Koberger was flown in a tiny, fixed-wing, single-engine Pilatus across the country. The plane landed at Moscow-Pullman Regional Airport, the same airport where only about three weeks earlier, Michael Koberger had arrived in anticipation of a convivial road trip with his son. The most perplexing question. Bad facts is a phrase defense lawyers like to bandy about. It's a term that's meant to draw an epistemological distinction between what is objectively real and what is subjective opinion. Just because the prosecutor says it's true, well, that doesn't make it so. And the bad facts riddling the probable cause affidavit that police used to obtain Koberger's arrest
as well as those in the laundry list of seemingly provocative items found in a search of Koberger's apartment in Washington are indeed disturbing. Item. The affidavit cites a shoe with a diamond-shaped pattern similar to the pattern of a Vans-type shoe style found at the scene of the crime. Well, does Koberger own a pair of Vans? And even if it's established that he does, there's a photo that shows at least one person in the house on King Road wearing Vans prior to the murders. Item. The cell phone tower data that links Koberger to the scene of the murders is more an approximation of his whereabouts than an exact location. And being in the vicinity is not at all the same as being at the scene of the crime. More damaging, the affidavit, with a remarkable candor, admits to some confusion in this sort of analysis. Investigators found that the 8545 phone did connect to a cell phone tower that provides service to Moscow on November 14th. 2022, but investigators do not believe the 8545 phone was in Moscow on that date. Huh? The prosecution is stating that the cell phone evidence is correct only some of the time. How's that going to fly with a jury? Item. The white Hyundai Elantra. While there are photos of the cars zooming through the Moscow streets on the night of the murder, there's no clear photo of Koberger at the wheel that evening. Not a single one. Item. The DNA on the knife she snapped. It's apparently touch DNA. That is, it's derived from a fingerprint, rather than a drop of blood. And that's pretty shaky evidence. Often more guesswork than science. The courtroom reality is that in case after case, touch DNA has been tarnished by a motley collection of false positive results. A smart defense attorney might argue that there's just as much likelihood of touch DNAs being accurate as a juror winning the lottery who'd want to condemn someone to execution based on those odds. Item. The eyewitness identification. Well... A lot of people have bushy eyebrows. And the testimony from a witness who was in a frozen shock phase, as she put it, might be problematic at best. And that's without even getting into why she waited seven hours or so before making sure the police were notified. The poignant truth might very well be that Dylan Mortensen, although she was not physically attacked, was another victim that night. And that she's in no shape to take the witness stand to face a rapid-firing, if not mean-spirited, defense counsel. Item. The murder weapon. Where is it? The police have not found the long-bladed knife used in the killings. And they have so far not been able to establish that Koberger owned such a weapon. And I have to wonder how conscientiously they are trying. Just a week ago, I walked into Dunkelberger's on Main Street in Stroudsburg. It's a sporting goods store that might as well be an armory. There are walls mounted with racks of rifles and display cases lined with gleaming, long-bladed knives. And it's just about a half-hour drive from the Koberger family home in Albrightsville. It's the sort of local shop one might visit if one were looking to buy a knife. So I asked the man who identified himself as the manager. 
if the police ever checked the store records to see if Brian Koberger had made a purchase. Nope, he answered. Pretty surprising, too, now that you mention it. But arguably the most perplexing question that the prosecutors will have to wrestle with if they hope to persuade a jury is, why? What was the motive for someone to kill four college students in cold blood? And so far there isn't one. I'm growing increasingly convinced that they will never find one. At least not a motive that's grounded in common sense logic. Motive, as in a reason, though. That might be another story. And so I find my thoughts being drawn back to the body cam footage that the police shot at the King Road house on a Thursday night in late September, less than two months before the murders. Three officers were responding to a noise complaint an annoyed neighbor had made. The neighbor certainly had good cause. The house was jumping. There was a tumult of blasting music and high-spirited, attractive college kids wandering in and out of the three-story home. Six-packs Be sure to check out my other videos and playlists for more true crime content. As I watch that video, and if that's not enough, you can join our again Patreon. And again. Don't have a tinfoil hat? In the perplexing it's okay. Days that followed, we'll make you one. It's that I found easy. myself reflecting See you guys in the next on video. one of wise old William later, Blake's bye. aphorisms. Exuberance is beauty. These giddy goings-on were exuberant, all right. And in their reckless, heedless, incautious, forever young ebulence, they were beautiful too. Can you imagine looking at that wild night? All the happy frivolity from some hideout in the shadows, at the same time knowing deep in your dark heart that you would never be a part of anything that exuberant, that beautiful. It would be hell. A hell of unsatisfied desire that could plunge someone deeper and deeper into a tormenting rage. An envy that would be all-consuming sickness. And in the end, there would be no way out. Just the deed. <laughs>